I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 122. Psalm 122. Before reading of God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Lord, we come, may we come, out of hearts filled with humility, acknowledging our need for Christ Jesus. Lord, may we never tire of coming to this place and hearing from Your Word, singing praises to Your name, and considering how we are called as Your dearly loved chosen people to live and to walk. May we hunger for the gospel of Christ. And Holy Spirit, may You enable us to see with greater clarity our need for Christ, the finished work of Christ, and the zeal that ought to be ours to live for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good." may be seated. Now, Psalm 122, as you'll notice from the title of this psalm, is another in this collection of songs of ascents. There are 15 such psalms that bear the same inscription from 120 to 134, a collection of psalms and hymns that were most likely used by God's people as they traveled to Jerusalem for annual feast days and to give their worship to the Lord. I think it's helpful to think of these psalms as psalms for a pilgrim people. These are psalms that are meant to bring us comfort, for this life is filled with hardship, discouragement, and trial. Psalms that are meant to instruct because we lack understanding and need the insight that comes from the Word of the Lord. Psalms that are meant to guide God's people as we move through this relatively short earthly life toward our heavenly home. The world around us does not want to acknowledge the transient nature of this life, but such a perspective is so critical for God's people to develop, for us to learn to live with that eternal perspective that all of our days collectively are like the grass of the field, here for a short time and then gone. And when we think of the Psalms, we might think of them as a haphazard collection of individual prayers and hymns. But there's great order to the structure in which the psalms are placed. These first three psalms of ascent from 120 to 122 form really a collection, a progress that we see captured in the psalmist's journey from beginning to culmination. Psalm 120 speaks of the tension of living in a world that has no desire for the things of the Lord. The psalmist in 120 longs for peace and deliverance while those around him are merely for hostility and division. In Psalm 121, the psalmist begins his journey from that realm of hostility to the holy hill of the Lord. 
the holy place where He will gather with God's people in worship. Along the way, it is a journey that's filled with uncertainty and trial and hardship, and yet He acknowledges that it is the Lord Himself who will guide, who will protect, who will lead His people on toward that final destination. And now Psalm 122 captures the arrival of the traveler at that destination. And we read of the overwhelming feeling of wonder, of awe, and worship that is now His as He stands within the geographical boundaries of the city. And so think of it like this, the restlessness of living in this world creates a longing for stability. And really, the stability that we long for, the security that our hearts yearn for, is not found in people or in circumstances that just line up the way in which we want, but that which we long for is found in the Lord God Himself, in worshiping the living God. I know on a Sunday morning, our minds tend to wander throughout a sermon, but if you get nothing else this morning, get this, God's people are meant to live out of a disposition of worship. It's been said that worship is an identity before it is an activity. And many of you have had occasion over these past summer months to enjoy some time away. Perhaps it was just a day or two at the beach, or maybe your vacation was a little more elaborate, taking you to an historic city or even to another country that you've longed to visit Let's imagine for a moment that your vacation was in that latter category, filled with a little more planning. And you've been planning for months to visit that wondrous location that you've only seen pictures of, that you've read about online or in history books. And as the months of anticipation turn into weeks and then just a few restless nights of sleep as those days ahead of time, and then just a matter of hours as you board the plane toward that destination, the expectation rises. And when that longing, when that planning, and when that anticipation finally becomes reality, and you see with your own eyes, not the eyes of another, and not through the experience of another, but you see for yourself, well, the feeling of wonder and delight are absolutely overwhelming. Now, back in the day, if you had gone on a journey like that, you would send home postcards to family and friends behind. If you kids don't know what postcards are, you can ask your parents at lunch about that. Well, today it would be a series of snapshots that you would take with your phone and immediately post to social media, documenting your progress, capturing your journey as you get closer and closer toward that long-anticipated destination. And the destination that you are headed to is not just one stop among many along the way, but this is the purpose for which you have come. Well, that's what the experience of the psalmist is like here in Psalm 122 progressing toward the worship of God as he comes to the holy city of the Lord. And what King David is capturing for here for us under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit is the longing that God's people ought to have to worship Him. And so let's see how he captures that longing to worship the Lord in this psalm, a psalm that's nicely divided into three segments or three different scenes, if you will. Now, that first scene or that snapshot is captured in verses 1 and 2, the joy that comes upon His arrival. And that's our first point this morning, the joy of arrival. 
If any portion of this psalm is familiar to us, it's probably verse 1. I rejoiced, I delighted with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You see, there is gladness and joy in gathering with God's people who are all coming for the same purpose, to worship God. He has come. He has traveled. He has endured the hardships and trials of the journey. He has walked up that holy hill of the Lord, and as He composes Himself and gathers His breath, He lets it all soak in, and there is wondrous joy that He has been made a recipient of God's grace. For now He stands, as He says in verse 2, within the gates of the city. Now, if we were to go back hundreds of years in Israel's history prior to the composition of this psalm, prior to the reign of King David, we would find Israel as a displaced nation. Now, while they experienced certainly special status by being called by God's grace to be children of Abraham and recipients of that covenant of mercy and kindness, for hundreds of years they lacked a place that they could call their own. And then upon their entrance into the land of promise, you know that there was that rocky period of the judges. And even the first king, Saul, who reigned over them, was a monumental disappointment. And they yet to have a king to rule over them in holiness of life. The Ark of the Covenant, which was that visible representation of the Lord's presence among them, has been moving from place to place without a final resting place. But now with the reign of David, there are some monumental changes. The Lord speaks to David and explicitly states that here is one who is a king after his own heart, and that there will be one who comes from the line of David whose kingdom shall never end. David moves the capital of the nation from Hebron to a more centralized location in Jerusalem. And upon that hill, a location is set apart a designated place where the people can come and worship God. The tabernacle is put there. The Ark of the Covenant is placed inside. The visible presence of the Lord descends upon it. The outer courtyard is a place in which sacrifices are made by the priests on behalf of the people. This is what the people of God had longed for for generations. They have longed for this place of permanence, a place of security, and of stability, a place where they can gather in times of peace with like-minded worshipers and come into the presence of the Lord. And isn't this what we, as God's people, ought to long for as well? And we teach our young children that the purpose of life, that our chief end, the reason for which we are created is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And what we mean by glorifying Him is simply finding in Him our all, delighting in Him, being satisfied in Him, finding our ultimate enjoyment in Him, not in the things of this world. Ligon Duncan says, what is worship? Well, to worship God is to declare with our lips and our lives, with our desires and our choices that God is our greatest treasure. Isn't that wonderful? Worship is to declare with our lips and lives, with our desires and our choices, that God is our greatest treasure. Worship is having a God-centered and not a self-centered view of reality. 
And very simply, I think it's worth asking if this joy and delight that's portrayed at the beginning of this psalm is an accurate picture of the longing of your own heart. Ask yourself, what is my heart like as I gather with God's people to worship Him? Is there joy and preparation and anticipation and delight when I come to worship the living God? Do I long to give my praise in unceasing manner to the Savior who shed His own blood for me, who has given me life? Do I look forward to hearing from the Word of the Lord and considering how I might bring my words my desires, my choices, my thoughts, all of life under submission to His rightful rule over me? Or am I just here because my parents make me come? Am I here just to get someone off my back? Am I here just to sort of fulfill that uh, guilty conscience and alleviate some sort of religious obligation? Am I here because it is the socially acceptable thing to do? J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful little book, Thoughts for Young Men, which is a great book not just for young men and women, but he writes this, your feelings about the Sabbath will always be a test and criterion of your fitness for heaven. Sabbaths are a foretaste and fragment of heaven. The man who finds them a burden and not a privilege may be sure that his heart stands in need of a mighty change. One of the biggest challenges that we face as God's people is to maintain joy throughout this earthly life. Now, joy is something that's relatively easy when circumstances are going the way that I want, when conflicts are sort of at a low, when everybody loves me as much as I love me. (laughs) But you see, fixing our gaze upon the living God Fixing our gaze upon our our loving Heavenly Father, that is what should bring sustaining joy in the life of the believer, not, again, connected to people or circumstances, but focused upon the Lord. Because the reality is life is filled with disappointments and discouragements and and frustrations and conflicts, but our confidence is not in such things. Our hope and therefore our joy is ought to be tethered not to those things or people, but tethered to our redemption. And it's that identity in Christ Jesus and our union with Him that ought to transform everything. And the psalmist here in verse 1 understands that. Worshiping the living God helps to put everything else in its proper place. It reorients the mind and the heart, the will and the emotions so that the result is lasting joy. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord, not set Him apart so that He becomes Lord. He already is Lord, but in your heart are you acknowledging such lordship and seeking to live for Him? Paul Tripp says that even in the saddest moments of life, there ought to be deep and abiding joy. Why? Well, because you are numbered among the people of God. This is what captivates the heart of the psalmist here. The wonder, how can it be that I would have such a privilege of knowing God and being known by Him? The humility as he considers his own unworthiness. I am so undeserving of coming into His presence, and it is only by His grace that I am summoned. 
Well, another thing that brings the psalmist joy here in this first scene is the joy of community. Part of what brings his heart such gladness is that there are others around him who are encouraging him and delighting in worshiping the Lord. John Calvin says, I take delight in the company of those who allure me into the service of God. And just think of your own life here. Are you surrounded by people who allure you into the service of the Lord? Are you one who seeks to allure others into such service? Is it a natural thing to gather together and worship the Lord, or is it forced and awkward because it's not part of your daily life? And the same goes with family worship. When you gather together, is it, is it contrived? Does it feel unnatural to you? Is there grumbling and complaining, or is there delight in such things? There's a great encouragement to your pastors to see so many of our young families seek to make family worship a priority together in the evenings, in which parents seek to create an atmosphere where it is normal to open up the Bible and read from God's Word, to use the children's or shorter catechism as a means to create dialogue about the wondrous truths of God's Word and our Reformed heritage to spend time praying for the needs of the church and needs of your family, and to model for our children the ease of access that is ours to go into the presence of the Lord. It's a great encouragement when young men and women gather with their roommates and talk about the sermon or seek to hold one another accountable and pray for one another. This is so countercultural, but it ought to be a normal and natural thing for the covenant community. Again, J.C. Ryle says, choose friends who will benefit your soul, friends whom you can really respect, friends whom you would like to have near you on your deathbed, friends who live the Bible and are not afraid to speak to you about the Bible, friends such as you will not be ashamed of owning at the coming of Christ and at the day of judgment. Proverbs 13.20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise but the companion of fools suffers harm. And as we move along in this psalm, let's let's notice secondly in verses 3 through 5, the joy of being numbered among the people of God, the joy of being counted among the elect and chosen people. We could think of this as scene two, as the psalmist moves from the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem, just inside the gates, and he progresses closer toward the tabernacle as that destination. And as he walks along the way throughout the city, he looks into the faces of thousands and thousands of worshipers, thousands of individuals, and thousands of families who have come all for the same purpose to gather in this small place to worship God. Some estimates say there would have been upwards of 500,000, half a million people gathered at one time on these annual days to worship the Lord tribes that have come from the surrounding nation of Israel, all in unison to serve their God and worship their king, to reorient their lives around his rightful kingly reign over them. If you have something like the ESV study Bible or the Reformation study Bible, perhaps you've seen an artist's rendering of what the ancient city of Jerusalem might look like. You may have noticed that it's a relatively small plateau 
with a gradual incline that would have gone up to the high point there in Jerusalem in which the tabernacle and later the temple was constructed, the high point of the location of worship. And as the population of this city would swell to these huge numbers during these annual times, of course, you would be limited as to the types of things that you could bring with you there up to the hill into the city of God. All of the things that you brought with you, all of your provisions and all of your possessions for the journey would have been left outside. All of the things of this world laid aside that you might pursue with zeal and focus the Lord alone. And I think what a great way for us to think of our own worship of God, that we are to gradually work to purge from our hearts and minds those things of the world that so easily entangle the desires of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the prides of possession as we look instead to the Lord Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And as the psalmist moves through this mass of people, there is such wonder and amazement of God's grace to him that God would include him, that he would be numbered among the tribes of God's people. And consider the wonder that ought to fill your own heart as you dwell upon your inclusion into this covenant of grace, that you would be included in this one singular covenant that runs throughout all of world history, that you would be numbered among the tribes of the Lord and numbered among the people of God. Such a wondrously infinite, transcendent truth ought to serve to help us, again, put everything else in life in its proper place. And of all of the things that tend to occupy our mind on a given week, things that we convince ourselves, if I just had those things in line, life would be so much better. Whether it's a desire for your boss to think that you were valuable and important, whether it's compliant children who just do what they're supposed to do, whether it's your spouse who just needs to learn to read your mind and do everything that you want him to do, to the roommates who just learn when you want to be left alone and have your own space. We're perpetually drawn to look for comfort in the creation, not our Creator. Now, we may not be quite this explicit, what we're really saying when we fixate upon such things is I would rather have comfort and ease and security and appreciation and respect than I would the living God. But as the psalmist considers the glorious place of this city, as he ponders the gathering of these thousands of tribes or thousands of members from these tribes coming to worship the Lord, as he sees the tabernacle in the distance and the smoke rising to the sky as sacrifices are offered to the Lord, he is looking beyond all of these things to the living God himself. You see, as great as this time of peace is under the reign of King David, as great as things might be under the reign of his son Solomon, whose name means peace, in which a time of great economic prosperity continues and the tabernacle is replaced by the more permanent structure of the temple, well, things will quickly unravel after the death of Solomon. The nation is divided, the kingdom falls, and the temple is destroyed. 
All of this, as great as it is, is all provisional. It is all temporary. It all points ahead, as we read earlier from Revelation 21, to something much greater. As the writer of Hebrews says, the substance, the reality, is Christ. He is the one who has taken us and engrafted us into the heavenly family of God. We are made a true child of the Abrahamic covenant as we look to the promises of God fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And notice what binds these people together in unity in this second scene. And when we think of unity, we might think of surrounding ourselves with people who simply do the things that we want them to do, who have the same pursuits and desires that I do. But in verse 4, it is the charge, notice, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, that what unifies the people is a spirit of thanksgiving. Giving thanks, you see, is a natural outflow of the humble heart. Giving thanks in all circumstances is a recognition that all that we have is of grace. There's no entitlement, there's no demands made of God or of others, but only of thanks. And not only do they give thanks to God together, but they are unified in verse 5 around the throne of God. It's a throne of authority and a throne of judgment. And perhaps you've seen those simple illustrations that capture the various longings of the human heart. Both of them have thrones in the very center. One has upon that throne self. Christ is there, the cross is there present within the heart, but it's off to the side or underneath that throne, and everything else is disjointed and out of place. I haven't denied Christ. He's there, but life is really more about me than anything else. The other shows the cross in the proper place there upon the throne, and everything else finds its proper place. The psalmist here acknowledges the importance of living all of life under the authority of God. And notice that he delights as well in the judgment of that throne we see in verse 5. Now, why would he delight in judgments? Why would the throne of judgment create wonder and awe and worship for him? Well, because as divine image bearers, we were created to live in joyful submission to our Creator. But ever since Genesis 3, there has been this cosmic conflict in creation, hostility between the rightful ruler of all and those who would wish to usurp his authority and rule their own lives. And all of redemptive history throughout the Old Testament is moving toward a resolution of that conflict. There is fulfillment, you see, in the cross of Christ as He bears the judgment that we deserve. And there is yet to come that final day of judgment, a definitive day in which all things will be made right and creation restored. Sinclair Ferguson says that there is a radical antithesis driving through the whole of redemptive history between the building of the kingdom of God by His King and the efforts of the power of darkness to destroy that kingdom. You see, the Bible is really a book about warfare, which find, finds its end in the death of Christ as death itself is vanquished. Righteous judgment means that a day of vindication for God's people is coming. 
We do not need as his people, you see, to fixate upon our own rights, our own desires. Those things do not need to prevail because on that final day, he will set all things right. And righteous judgment means that I might experience peace now, an eternal peace on that final day. And that brings us finally to the third scene, the third scene that we see in verses 6 through 9, the place of peace. Back in Psalm 120 in verse 7, you can look there, the psalmist, notice that he states that he is for peace while those around him are for division. And now as he moves into that final scene, into the proximity of the tabernacle, he sees the means of God's provision in which peace is accomplished and peace is sustained. The enmity, you see, that we created in our own wickedness, in our own foolishness, in our own rebellion against God, finds restoration in God's provision. God Himself is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who has provided this means of peace through substitutionary sacrifice. In times of old, the sacrifices of bulls and goats, of lambs and of sheep were merely provisional, pointing ahead to true atonement found in Christ. And David understands that as he looks with eyes of faith beyond those things to the fulfillment of the Lord's provision, the means of restoration in which God brings peace in the sending of His own Son. You remember at the beginning of John's gospel, when John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And the prayer of verse 6, the prayer for peace is not so much a prayer for the peace of a geographical piece of land in the Middle East. This is not some sort of dispensational longing for the peace of Israel, but rather it is a prayer that the peace found here in the substitutionary work of another would be a peace that prevails throughout this world. That the peace that is found ultimately in the work of Christ is a peace that would prevail in the darkness of this fallen world. It's really a prayer for missions, isn't it? A prayer that hearts and minds would bow in loving submission to the reign of this final King of David, the Lord Jesus. The prayer for peace is a prayer for unity among the people of God, that we among ourselves would be people who model peace in our own lives, that strife and division would be things that are laid aside, that the reality of conflict would be acknowledged but sought to be resolved in such a way that God is honored and His people are unified around the gospel of our Savior. The Apostle Paul captures this spirit of unity that ought to be among us in Philippians chapter 2, where he writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So does this pursuit of peace characterize your own life? 
Are you seeking the good of God's people? Are you seeking to live for His honor and glory, seeking to be an encouragement one to another, refraining from biting words or a divisive spirit which can lead to harm in the body of Christ? Is your gaze upon your precious Savior? Very simply, are you living life for yourself or for the Lord God who has redeemed you, the King who rules over you, the God of peace who has brought atoning peace through the shed blood of His very own Son? And this really brings us back to the start of this psalm, is to consider the calling that is before me. Am I a praying person? Am I a person who is zealous for the worship of God? What am I doing to be an encouragement to one another, to spur one another on toward that day as it approaches? The psalm began with an encouragement to see worship as the primary thing in the life of the believer, and it ends with this resolution, with this exhortation to pray for peace, to seek peace love and unity among one another, a resolution ultimately to live for the greatness of God, for His glory, and not for our own. May God be pleased to take the eternal truth of His Word and write it on the hearts of His people.